We are not alternative anymore. It's a quickly evolving industry. And, of course, amazing opportunities. We look at the industry and its topics. Things are changing very quickly. What is that market setup going to look like? It's very much about charging experience. Going to much more mature business. And, of course, new revenue streams. Those companies will either have to improve or they'll just die. This is the Electric Avenue Podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Electric Avenue podcast about the rapidly growing world of electric vehicle charging. I'm your host, Aaron Fishbone, Public Policy Director of Greenway, based in Bratislava, Slovakia. We have a very special episode for you today, Transatlantic Electric Vehicle Charging Policy, with the President of the United States' own Zero Emission Transport Association, Joe Britton. Joe and Zeta, as it's called, are fresh off the momentous passage of some major pieces of legislation in the U.S., the Bipartisan Infrastructure Bill, which invested $7.5 billion U.S. dollars into EV charging, and, just recently in August, the momentous Inflation Reduction Act, with $370 billion U.S. dollars for climate investments, including many in the electric vehicle and charging supply chains. Given that we're nearing the final negotiations of Europe's own sweeping electric vehicle charging law, the Alternative Fuels Infrastructure Regulation, I thought this would be a good time to touch base with Joe and compare notes on what's happening in Europe and in the USA in terms of EV policy and what we can learn from each other. We have a great interview ahead, so without further ado, welcome Joe. Yeah, Aaron, thanks for having me. Introduce yourself, please, and explain Zeta for our listeners. Yeah, of course. Yeah. So Zeta is the Zero Emission Transportation Association. We have, you know, anywhere between 55 and 60 members, uh, all in the ecosystem uh, for the electric vehicle. So we've got, you know, manufacturers like Tesla and Lucid, uh, you know, Rivian. We've got the battery manufacturers like Panasonic, some recyclers uh, like Lycycle, Redwood Materials, nearly every charging company. Um, some of the manufacturers of the charging, so um, ABB, Siemens. Um, and then, you know, a host of utilities that are providing the power for these vehicles. And we do all federal advocacy. The thing that unites Zeta is that we all want to uh, drive towards 100% EV sales by the year 2030, uh, which is bold. But, you know, the legislation that was just passed will, you know, really provide a tailwind and push not only the vehicle deployment and the consumers, but hopefully the build out of the charging infrastructure. So the short story is that, we, you know, we've we've scratched off and, you know, accomplished nearly two thirds of what we set out to do this Congress uh, between the bipartisan infrastructure bill, the appropriations process, and then obviously the Inflation Reduction Act. So uh, it's been a busy, busy time, uh, but one where, you know, I think we've we've achieved something really meaningful and a sense of accomplishment. Well, I mean, it's, it's absolutely fantastic. So it's huge. Where to even begin, actually? Just I guess just very quickly for listeners. I mean, so Zeta, you're based in the United States, and um, people know that I also am a member of Charge Up Europe. So that's the European Industry Association representing the charging infrastructure, and the, the charging ecosystem. So uh, Zeta and Charge Up Europe both have common members in EV Box and ChargePoint and ABB. I think those are the, the shared members right now. So we really represent, let's say, the charging infrastructure side of things. And then sometimes there's a different perspective than the automotive side. So I'm wondering that you as an association that has both sets of members, uh, do you sometimes notice that difference, different viewpoint? I mean, not necessarily between the vehicle manufacturers and the charging companies. You know, I think they're they're fairly collegial and, you know, have, I think, you know, and that's what actually brings us all together is that we believe that for the sector to move forward and to accelerate transportation electrification, everybody has to win, right? We need to be in this together. You know, I would say if there's any conflict 
on the charging side, we typically see it between the power producers and the and the EV charging companies. And largely, it's just about you know segregating how and where each of those different commercial models are investing, who owns the infrastructure, and you know you get demand charges and other things that you know some commercial disputes. But you know for us, we tend to focus on where there's consensus naturally. One reason why I wanted to do this episode is because the U.S. has now passed these two you know really landmark bills, and in addition to all the other executive level work and appropriations work you mentioned. In Europe, where I'm based and where I work, we are in the final stages of negotiating our landmark infrastructure bill. For the first time ever, Europe will have a continent-wide infrastructure bill called the Alternative Fuels Infrastructure Regulation that really sets the guidelines and sort of sets the market rules for publicly accessible charging infrastructure. There will be further bills that are less legally binding and stringent for, you know, semi-public and private charging, and those are coming and working on those as well. But I just thought this would be a great time to have this conversation to reflect on kind of what the U.S. has done and how the U.S. government views policymaking and some of, let's say, the practices it's come up with that could maybe be reflective, uh, you know, in the European debate. So so maybe I'll just ask you briefly then or broadly, I mean, how does the U.S. government or this administration view the role of the federal government and then lower levels of government when it comes to deploying charging infrastructure? Like what's its role in the marketplace? Well, so the way to think about it, at least in the US, we expect about 70% of charging to be done at home. And so the real public interest that needs to be uh, addressed is closing that gap. So this is folks that, you know, either in multi-unit housing, don't have off-street parking. So, you know, where do we, you know, build infrastructure? And in some ways it's, I think about it in two different buckets. One is level two, which is going to be, you know, retail, office, on and off street parking, you know, multi-unit housing, where, you know, my guess is 80% of the public interest, you know, the closing that gap, right, the remainder of the people that aren't charging home, about 80% is going to be level two. The rest is obviously your direct current fast charging. And I think for, you know, federal policymakers, what they wanted to, to resolve first was those interstate corridors, right? So this is the areas where, you know, you're going on a long distance trip, you know, they wanted to close and have charging every 50 miles, along interstates and highways. And so that's kind of the first order from the bipartisan infrastructure bill. There's $5 billion there to do that. Once a state hits their every 50 mile benchmark, they can go into, um, you know, retail settings. They can go into those, um, you know, you know, level two charging opportunities to, you know, close the gap. And, you know, the ultimate goal is to provide ubiquitous or universal access to charging. So, you know, the public interest is how do we make it accessible? How do we make it so that every consumer has the confidence that, you know, they're going to grandma's house for Thanksgiving and, you know, they're you know going to have plenty of charging options. And then the rest is, you know, I think about the subnational governments. So this is your counties, your municipalities. They're going to be thinking far more about, you know, how do we create the retail settings, the school, you know, those community-based charging uh, where folks can go and access your level two and close those gaps. What is the power level for level two or the range? Well, so if you think about level two, you know, it's usually between six and 11 kilowatts. Uh, so obviously it depends on your vehicle for the range extension per hour, but you know, that's about 25 miles of range that you're going to get per hour. So between six and 11 kilowatts. Yeah. And then your, you know, your, your direct current fast charging, you'll see some at 50, but most are going to be between 150 and 250 kilowatts for your direct current fast charging. Yeah. Oh, that's really interesting. I mean, to hear that I've actually never driven electric in the United States. Um, every now I go, I'm like on the train or the bus or something else. Let me rephrase. I've never recharged publicly in the U S um, a lot of that here in Europe. 
But in fact, tomorrow I'm driving from Bratislava, Slovakia to Berlin, Germany for the Hubject, you know, the roaming platform conference on Monday. So it's going to be like about a 700 mile drive, you know, an ID3. Uh, it's going to be interesting through three countries. So it'll be, it'll be an interesting adventure. But what we have is sort of the destination charging, like you said, you know, retail, gyms, the cinemas, things like that. It's, you know, usually between 11 and 22 kilowatts. And now, you know, I work for a CPO Greenway, and when we deploy fast charging, like two years ago, it was 50 was the standard, but now it's even up to 1, 1, 110 as sort of what is the new standard, the new normal for, for what is a DC fast charger. Yeah, there's a lot of, I mean, there's DCFCs going in right now at 350. Not every vehicle can take it, but they're out there. You know, I've seen one or two of them. We Out here, we have 175s. And it's interesting, too, that you talked about the, you know, kind of the role of the government in terms of deploying chargers along the interstate corridors. So is that direct federal funding to state departments of transportation to then do more local mapping or how does that work? Yeah, no, exactly. Yeah, August 1st, so, you know, I guess just a little over a month ago, all the state plans were due. So there's a subnational grant that goes to the states. They'll obviously be working with their, you know, counties and municipalities, um, you know, highway roads departments to put that in. But, you know, there's a, I believe there's an 80% cost share, but yeah, it's a big federal investment. And again, you have to kind of balance the, the amount of cost with the level of service, right? So again, we're prioritizing closing those uh, transportation corridor gaps where we, you know, there's a lack of charging, but a direct current fast charger, The way I think about it in U.S. dollars, you know, some are going to be more, some are going to be less, but just for ease of, you know, kind of conveying the point, you know, you think about a direct current fast charger, it's going to cost you about $100,000. You could put in a level two for about $2,000. You really want to get that blend right. And so we're going and taking those kind of the most challenging, most expensive chargers, having the federal government step in and help deploy those uh, for the public interest goals of, you know, accelerating transportation electrification. But for the larger ecosystem, you know, we don't want to recreate the gas station model where, you know, you're spending $100,000 a pop when you could have 50 level twos for the same price, right? And I think that's where, you know, getting the balance right, you know, is going to make the, the biggest difference. Because, you know, for an average driver, you know, if your car is going to be sitting there for four to eight hours, you know, an upfront investment of $100,000 for a direct current fast charger for that retail setting or that office park doesn't make a ton of sense. So it's all about the balance. No, this is really interesting. I mean, we have a whole separate discussion, or maybe we will, about, you know, the, the gas station model and whether or not it's the best model to apply to, to electric vehicle charging or not. One other development, I guess, that came out of it was the Joint Office for Energy and Transport in the United States. And as I understand this, this seems like a really impressive uh, development where it was a way to bring together staff from the Department of Transport who are responsible for the roadways and then Department of Energy, who are obviously responsible for the electricity and the power and bring them together into one office to sort of, you know, jointly coordinate those deployments. And and frankly, you know, in our work in Europe, I see all that discoordination a lot. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that office and maybe the process that led to that office being created and how it's going. Yes, it was actually, you know, not to take full credit, but, you know, about two years ago, this was actually an idea that we came up with. And, you know, really the the point of it was silo busting, right? You've got program officers and staff focused and, you know, historically on important work, but stuff that can be a little disjointed. Um, And, you know, this is an area where you need everybody rowing together. And so, you know, we'd recommended the creation of this joint office. And so as part of the bill, they end up creating the joint office, which is actually really helpful because, you know, we have this unprecedented investment, you know, seven and a half billion dollars for charging 
infrastructure. And so you needed to have, you know, rulemaking and outreach and all of the, you know, kind of component regulatory pieces to make it successful uh, to be done in tandem. And so, yes, yeah, I think it's been a really successful model. Um, you know, the states have responded well. Uh, again, the outreach in some ways is the hardest. I mean, we've got 50 state governments that, you know, have their own state departments of transportation and, you know, getting 50 different institutions and, you know, bureaucratic biases all together to, you know, be pushing and ideally deploying effectively this money. It was a big, big challenge and a tall order. And so did all 50 states submit plans? They did outreach to every single state. They, they did sit downs and said, this is our goal. Here's the metrics. This is what you need to be thinking about. And so, you know, that's an enormous uh, effort for any agency, let alone, you know, you know, one that maybe had either conflicting or institutional differences. So bringing those all together just made a lot of sense. And so all 50 states did submit plans? I believe there's a few that didn't get in by August 1st, but yeah, the vast majority did. Okay, well, that's great. And how is it actually going? You know, we'll hopefully see by the end of the year some of those dollars out and, and the deployment start. But, you know, I think, uh, you know, nine to 12 months from now, we'll be able to look back and say, you know, here's what they got right. Here's what they got wrong. Yeah, yeah. You said that there, the funding goes for 80% of the of the hardware. So is that just for the CapEx or is there any additional funds to sort of up maintain it and, you know, do maintenance and sort of operational costs? Well, that's a good question. I think that's part of the state plans. I think they, you know, they've got to identify, you know, the partners that they're going to use. I mean, for example, if you're selling uh, a level two charger to the federal government, the cheapest it'll come is seven or eight thousand dollars, and it's usually because it comes with a period of service and maintenance. So you and I, you know, we could go and buy, you know, a, a, a level two charger for six or seven hundred dollars, uh, maybe pay a couple hundred to get it connected to the panel box. But that's why, you know, some of those, um, you know, those relationships, strategic partnerships with the charging companies will go a long way. You know, my guess is there'll be, you know, a, a proposal to have some level of service. Obviously, you know, that's the, in some ways the most important, you know, having inoperable charging stations is worse than having none at all. So you want to obviously make sure you get that right. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the issue of reliance and reliability is such an important topic. In the U.S., is there a vision for the, let's say, the entire regulatory framework around EV charging? You know, in Europe, there's lots and lots of charge point operators, more, I think, than there are in the U.S., uh, private ones, as well as small little public utilities. And now we're at this pivotal moment where we're talking 2035 phase out of combustion engine vehicles. I mean, there's just all of these pressures to, you know, go electric and switch as quickly as possible. So there is an entire, I would say, vision for now stitching all of these disparate charge points together. And there's a bunch of different and sometimes competing proposals for how to do that. But nonetheless, the vision is to make it an open, interoperable uh, system throughout Europe. It encompasses quite a few things. I'm wondering if there is a similar vision in the U.S. and at the federal level. And is there are there efforts to, let's say, to then impose that vision or to make it a reality in a private marketplace? No, there's not. I mean, I, I, it's still a fairly distributed system. The center of gravity that's pulling folks together is the NEVI program, the National Electric Vehicle Infrastructure Program. There's conditions on that money, like I talked about, you know, some symmetry that's being created there. I also think there's some, you know, strategic, you know, commercial partnerships that are also pulling a lot of this together. Um, but, you know, by and large, it's not a, you know, centrally planned, you know, build out, right? I think you're going to see a dozen or more charging companies that, you know, float to the top and have really deployed capital effectively. 
Um, the other thing is that, you know, plug-wise, there's been a center of gravity created on the plugs. You know, you've got the CCS and the Tesla that are kind of winning out here. It's not terribly different than, you know, your cell phones, right? You know, you've got the, you know, USB-C or got your lightning uh, charger for a phone, right? You know, that was kind of a big debate several years ago, but I think there's been, you know, some yeah. mean reversion there. You know, the other the other part of this that I think you're, you're seeing more and more consolidation in the site hosts, right? You know, people want this to be easy for consumers, right? You want to be able to pull up at the coffee shop, at the grocery store, at school, uh, at your office setting and, you know, and, and be able to charge easily. Yeah, you know, I think the payment, that's where there's been a big debate. You know, some groups that are really pushing for credit card readers. Live in that reality. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, I think to me, the, the thing that makes the most sense, because, you know, for a credit card reader, you know, certainly if it's an open slot credit card reader, it's in the, you know, elements and range. You know, by and large, getting to a tap contactless tap system is one that makes a ton of sense. You know, they're more resilient. Uh, so I think that's that's largely where you'll see some consensus. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, you want to make it easy for folks. So, you know, obviously there's some proprietary interests in having people, you know, on your platform or your app. But, you know, I think if you have a contactless tap system to provide, you know, access for everybody, I think that makes a lot of sense. Is that in competition with having a subscription to a mobility service provider? Well, I think the goal is to, you know, to be able to enable a, a tap contactless payment. You know, I don't know that it's in competition. I ultimately think most American consumers, they're going to kind of be in two systems, right? You're going to have ones that really value the Tesla network, certainly the direct current fast chargers um, that are, you know, deployed across the country. And then you've got others that are, you know, it's EVgo, it's ChargePoint, it's, you know, increasingly, you know, Flow, Electrify America here. That's kind of the dynamic. I don't think that you know, tap is going to be in direct competition with subscription. I think most Americans were driven by convenience, probably more so than price in many ways. Time is money, right? Let's make it easy for a change. Yeah. It'll, you know, there'll be, it'll be, like I said, 70% at home. People are going to have their habits, right? They're going to be at work. They're going to be at school. They know the charger that's going to be there. It's really, you know, that cross country trip where, you know, you're probably going to be pulling up on your, you know, your car or your phone. Hey, where am I going to stop? And where we need to get is to where, you know, the plug sanctifies the charge, right? You plug in, you've got kind of an automated system and, you know, that's the ease with which we want to get to, you know, it just makes the most sense. I was getting briefed by technical teams today on, I mean, exactly this topic and sort of like, how do we move this forward? And um, it, on one hand, you know, it, it, I think the discussion is, seems a bit further along in, in Europe, uh, or maybe it's more heated in Europe. I'm not sure. Um, certainly ChargePoint and SAE are very involved in the, in the U.S. side. But uh, but then someone made the point, like, this is a global system. So anything we figure out here still ultimately needs to, you know, needs to work globally um, when it comes to roaming and interoperability and, and whatnot. It's very interesting, this plug and charge debate. I like in the just the period that we're in, like much more like the Burger King and McDonald's wars, right, of location. Right. I think location is driving location. Sure. Wherever, wherever Burger King went, wherever McDonald's was just across the street. <laughs> yeah, I think it's much more location driven than it is, you know, company loyalty or subscription. You know, it's really where where are Americans going to be. And that's where you want to get right. You want charging to happen in the background. People are going to be doing other things in their lives. And the charging is just this convenient, you know, thoughtless thing that just happens along with it. That's where we want to get to. And I mean, so then do you see, is there a role for like a company that is a professional charge point operator? Or is that something that's ultimately, you think, going to be subsumed by the, by the location hosts, especially the bigger ones? 
I think the, the the site hosts, a very big retail site host might end up doing more and more of this on their own, but the vast majority, I think are going to be, you know, charging companies. And if you think about it, you know, there's going to be strategic partnerships where you've got a charge point who's partnering with McDonald's and EVgo who's partnering with Starbucks. Like that's how I envision most of this happening. But it's, you know, it, it ultimately is a race right now on location to provide convenience. And, you know, I actually did talk to somebody last week who's thinking about like, all right, how, how about I skip the whole charging uh, deployment part and I just don't go do and make ready the electrical and the power equipment so that I then have raced ahead and scooped up all the locations and then I'm going to go sell those to EVgo and a charge point there, which I thought was an interesting model. But again, it shows you how the race is really location based rather than it is brand or subscription based. On the other hand, that guy is that guy and his company are going to do all the hard work and then just sell sell like an nearly finished product. Well, no, that's actually what I said. I was like, you know, you got to figure out how you're going to be different than everybody else, and like maybe you're really good at it, but at the end of the day, like bolting on the actual unit, you might as well go the extra mile. Is the easy part. Do you see hubs or is it? standalone chargers it kind of depends i mean i think like certainly there's going to be banks right i think like an 8 to 12 bank um you know charging location is going to be i think the norm um you know if the market doesn't demand it you know you might you know a lot of rural areas charge point actually has done this in the u.s there's you know one or two charge point charging stations at nearly every high school um, across many parts of the U.S. So they've, you know, they've gone into like, you know, a, a more niche location market. To me, the hubs are going to exist along transportation corridors within a mile of the highway where you're going to have a cluster of retail settings, right? It's going to be 10 to 12 minutes, maybe 15 minutes. If you really, you know, if you really want to spend some time there and you're low on a charge, maybe you're going to grab a sandwich and use the restroom. I think that to me is where the clustering is going to happen. It's going to be retail based. Um, and again, it's closing the gap. Like you have to think, again, the vast majority is going to be charging at home. You're going to wake up every day with a full charge. Maybe you're going to be plugging in at the office. I think the most, you know, kind of interesting is, you know, what sort of corridor-based clusters and retail settings and what do those look like? But again, I think if you're leaning into it and you're doing it right, you're going to be successful. I only stop at a place, you know, if I'm, if I'm pulling off and I'm on a long road trip, right, I'm only going to stop at a place that has a charger. So what about heavy-duty vehicles and heavy-duty vehicle charging? Is that a big topic in the U.S.? Yeah, I actually um, had lunch today with some of the folks at FedEx. Um, you know, they've got some pretty broad goals. I think 2040 is is their, you know, stated public goal. I think they're, you know, on, on pace to even beat that. But, you know, the fleet operators actually want to do a lot more in the medium and heavy-duty space. I think you know, it's a demerit for our, you know, policy debates to only talk about light-duty. But, you know, the, the medium and heavy-duty, a lot of people don't realize this, but you know, for in the U.S., it's only about 10% of vehicle miles traveled, but it's 30% of the transportation sector's carbon emissions, and then over 50% of the pollution that really impacts public health. So you you have huge dividends for emissions reduction in the medium and heavy duty sector. Um, obviously, environmental justice, asthma, other sorts of health issues that, you know, if you're focused on medium and heavy duty, you can make really great strides in addressing those. Um, so we want to do more in the space. In the Inflation Reduction Act, there was a 30% ITC for those vehicles. And ITC is an investment tax credit. Yeah, so let's say you spend $100,000 on the vehicle, you get $30,000 in tax credits for the vehicle. Uh, that's a pretty 
pretty strong uh, incentive. For me, it's a really interesting question. How much appetite do the OEMs have to really produce these vehicles? Because it's a bit of a flywheel, right? You have to create a market and have them be used in order to get clients to buy them. And then you need the charging to justify the clients buying. And and I, I'm a little concerned because we seem to have not done as nearly as good a job on the like light, lighter duty vehicles that are doing urban routes, you know, which seems like it's a, such a great use case for, you know, for going electric and, and they're just not being produced in, in volume. And so... Yeah, the supply side on the medium and heavy duty, I mean, we've got, you know, some numbers like Arrival and Proterra and Lion Electric that are, you know, doing medium and heavy duty buses. Um, yeah, I think for your last mile delivery, you know, you know, there's Workhorse, there's a host one, but at scale, the supply side is the biggest constraint for medium and heavy duty of the vehicles. Um, but, you know, that's the other thing that was in the Inflation Reduction Act was a, a huge investment in the industrial policy. So there was $10 billion for advanced manufacturing. There was $2 billion for automotive retrofits. There was, you know, $20 billion in loan authority to help folks stand up the U.S. Uh, manufacturing base. So the, the hope is that you're solving both at once, right? You're providing durable demand with this ITC, but then you're helping these companies stand up the manufacturing capacity to get it right. So I think we're going to be making a ton of progress, but you know, it, to me, it is an obvious use case. So like, you know, for example, if you've got a, a 200 mile range vehicle, I think for many last mile delivery fleets, you're looking at 96, 97% of their routes can be serviced by those vehicles. But then there's a lot of them. And I didn't really think about this until recently. There's a lot of routes, you know, certainly strong urban settings. The average length of the route is five or six miles in a given day. And so the way that they're thinking about it is you start with your longer routes with those new longer range vehicles, but you know, they're 10, 15 years old, and there may be some degradation or range impacts, you move those to the shorter routes. And so there's tiering throughout the, you know, the value chain for electrification to serve every single route for a lot of this last mile delivery. And if you think about a lot of these, you know, if if it's not electric, this vehicle, if you're on a six mile route, and it takes eight hours to deliver, you know, packages or mail for over the course of six miles, it's just sitting and idling most of the day. It's idling. Yeah, it's just idling. Yeah. Those are the best use case. One of the best use cases for for electric vehicles. One one of them that I think is kind of funny. It's you know I don't know you guys probably don't follow, but there's a a Trump holdover here that's running the postal service. His name is Louis DeJoy, is the postmaster. I personally am am following the topic quite closely. So, uh, but maybe not all the listeners are. Yeah. So he, um, it was funny. So he put out this press release. Says, "Hey, great news! We're going electric." And by the way, which you would think would make great sense for the post office that's doing totally predictable routes every single day. Yep. Average route is like 22 miles, right? It's not, you know, anyway, so he puts out this press release saying, hey, good, great news. We're going electric. Um, and so then the obvious questions, well, oh, when, how, what percentage of the fleet? And then they started, and then the answers started to get really screwy. Um, so the answers were, well, you know, we, have, we, 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 you know, we have the option. We're going to buy these vehicles and then we're going to decide. And we said, oh, that's, that's strange. You're going to decide afterwards. You go, oh, yeah. Then they said it was going to be a convertible uh, drivetrain where it's going to be internal combustion engine at first. And then we'll just, you know, have the ability to swap it out later. And we said, oh, that's, you know, that's strange, man. You've really solved this problem that nobody else in the industry has solved. And then they say they gave the contract to Oshkosh Defense that makes uh, tactical military vehicles has never made an EV. So we're like, oh, wait a minute, this company who's never made an EV has figured this out. And so ultimately we kind of peeled this back and they had to, and then they said, you know, ultimately, uh, you know, only 10% of the vehicles are going to be electric. So we've been on them for like two years, highlighting one, like, you know, the fact that there was just huge holes in their public statements. And uh, so anyway, the good news is 
we got them to commit to 40% uh, electrification. And this was before we passed the climate bill. In the climate bill, there's $3 billion to help them close the gap. So the hope is with the Postal Service that we'll be able to get them fully electrified. And, and ultimately, it's in the public interest, not only for the pollution and emissions, but all of their competitors are going that direction. Hopefully, we're on the right track there. But it, it, to me, it's a sign of the value of advocacy, where if you're not holding people accountable, you get screwy outcomes sometimes. And that's where the path they were on. And ideally, we get them fully electrified, but it took some time to yank them back. That is crazy. It's crazy that people are trying so hard to stay you know, in the burning combustion engine business, especially when they're working for a U.S. government agency, when the stated goal of public policy is to, you know, decarbonize quickly, you know, 2030, 2050. So great job. I, I have personally been following the work that you and Zeta are doing on that. And uh, thank you all for doing that. Okay, so speaking of skeptics, uh, speaking of, of electric vehicle skeptics, right now we're in a really unique time. You know, Russian invasion of Ukraine is continuing. And even though there's a really looking like a pretty good Ukrainian counteroffensive going on right now, nonetheless, energy markets throughout the world in response to the Russian invasion through to sanctions on Russia to, you know, trying to wean off of Russian oil and gas to, you know, Russia weaponizing gas. And then, of course, it's a global market. So Long story short, energy prices, uh, certainly in Europe, are all over the place. And I know obviously in the U.S., there was this all of this discussion of, you know, kind of gas prices over the summer. And, and I'm starting to see, you know, people, skeptics and critics saying, oh, first you want me to buy an electric, an expensive electric vehicle, and now you tell me I can't recharge it. Or now it's too expensive to recharge it. So we're in this moment where we're both pushing this, you know, EV transition and a broader, you know, green and decarbonized energy transition at the same time as, you know, we're all experiencing, you know, a lot of kind of volatility in energy markets. Are you having these conversations and how are you talking to people about this? Well, it's interesting in the U.S. It's really found through natural gas. It's the only real corollary. But ultimately, to the extent there's elasticity, right? So oil prices, gas prices are high. It finds its way into electricity. It's largely because we haven't severed the tie, right? So the the ability for electric vehicles to help us more efficiently use the grid we have, to me, is one of the greatest resources, right? So either demand response or managed charging, because ultimately, here's how you know the grid gets strained. And it's really not vehicles right now, but everybody gets home, they turn on their AC, you know, they throw a load of clothes in the in the washing machine, just things, you know, everything happens that net peak typically in the US between four and six, right? Even if you're driving a lot that day, and you're on a level two charger, you're gonna have a full charge no matter what, come the morning. And it is, you know, probably let's say at most four or five hours of charging. If you have just you're part of a demand response program, or you just have managed charging set up on your unit because, you know, electricity is cheaper at night. It's a way to shift all that load uh, to when, you know, you've got excess. And in the U.S., we actually idle a lot of solar resources during the day uh, because there's nothing to take that power. And so there's negative pricing at certain points. So if you if you use electric vehicles to you know, kind of flatten the peaks and valleys in the grid system, it helps us more efficiently use the grid. But if you wanted to be a real critic and say, well, gosh, electricity is more expensive now and you're charging people more, it's also directly related to times when oil and gas is super expensive too. And so not until we actually, you know, sever our reliance, our helpless reliance on foreign oil markets, will we ever be back into control? Right. That's kind of the challenge that we face. So, I, you know, I would say to folks, we can create electricity locally between gas, nuclear and renewables. We have plenty of that resource in, in North America, but we're still because of these these oil markets. It really is. It is that oil that, you know, because we create light, sweet crude in the U.S. We don't have the refining capacity for it. So no matter how much we drill 
and extract in the U.S., we're still reliant on foreign oil markets. And so EVs are a prime way to do two things. One, more efficiently use the grid we have today. But then two, sever our reliance on this market we don't control. We can create power locally. We know how to do that. You know, we're no longer, you know, going to be tethered to or be reliant on a market that, you know, Vladimir Putin or some other dictator controls because of OPEC or its, you know, invasions or conflict around the world. We can have a secure energy system in the U.S. And I think many parts of Europe ideally are getting there. I mean, we're trying to help. The other thing that's part of this bill is, you know, providing the manufacturing capacity to deliver, you know, heat pumps uh, to Europe. We want to do that as a strategic resource to help, you know, our allies wean themselves off Russian oil, too, or Russian gas. So to me, it's putting a thruster behind what we already know is the right answer. And the nice thing is we don't need to tell people, hey, you got to sacrifice today in order for this elusive good at another time. We can provide people a cheaper um, transportation system today. And, oh, by the way, it, you know, weans us off this reliance on a foreign market that, you know, we don't control. And I think that's what, you know, we've been busy telling people. Like, it's five to six times more expensive to power your vehicle on gasoline than it is electricity in the U.S., and that's a pretty strong market signal. That's huge. That's huge. I mean, the vehicle is still more expensive, and that's the challenge, right? We need the price of the vehicles to go down. And that's, you know, and that's, a, you know, I think there's there are some, you know, that are some EVs that you can get for less than the average price of a sedan generally. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, that's the point of this, you know, this $7,500 vehicle incentive. And it's paired a lot of times with state or local incentives, you know. So mm-hmm. once you get enough of the vehicle and battery, if you get that sort of concentration, then all of a sudden it starts to justify the refining, the minerals, you know, because, you know, because before, you know, nobody wanted to finance those big expensive projects. And that's not until we actually proved out that we had the demand for the vehicles, the manufacturing capacity for the vehicles and the batteries, that all of a sudden you start to get the minerals and the refining capacity and the parts and components. So this whole ecosystem is getting across the finish line together and is driving a lot of economic activity here. It's exciting to see. And I think the bill had a lot to do with that in terms of reorienting. And it'll still take a few years, but reorienting supply chain. You have a uh, scorecard up on your website, you know, Zeta tracking your announced goals and your objectives and achieving them. So now that the IRA is passed, now that the BIF is passed, what's what's next for Zeta and what's next on your agenda? Well, I, so I think what's next for us, I mean, the, in the in the short term, it's going to be implementation. We've passed, you know, this legislation, I guess the, the bipartisan bill, the Inflation Reduction Act. There's just an enormous amount of regulatory work and implementation work, coordination with the states, like the joint office is doing what you talked about. So I think we're going to turn a lot of our focus on making sure that's done right, doing done quickly, and a huge priority on making that efficient and easy for those communities, those site hosts, to, you know, to start to build that charging infrastructure. There's going to be a lot of work going into how to define percentage of value of the battery, percentage of value of the critical minerals, make sure that we do that in a way that is attainable and provides, you know, because ultimately we want every vehicle and every consumer eligible for these tax credits. So we've been working with the White House, you know, they, they obviously want the same thing. So, you know, they've kind of chartered the National Economic Council and, you know, the whole of government to help figure out how do we identify places, you know, trade partners, you know, whether it's development or refining capacity in North America, there's a bunch done in Brazil, some in Finland, some in Australia, making sure that, you know, we're pulling our supply chains um, out of China in the way that the bill is encouraging. So, you know, more and more vehicles are eligible. That'll be a ton of the work. We want to do more in the medium and heavy duty space. Um, I think, you know, getting those fleet 
um, operators, um, you know, electrified is going to be a big part of it. And then there's a ton of work at the state level. So you've got, you know, some of it's offense, some of it's defense. You know, you, you still had EV fees propping up across the country, even in states that you wouldn't expect. Um, there's direct sales fights that are always out there, right? You know, you've got some of the legacy auto dealers that don't want EVs sold in their state. So, you know, I think kind of knocking down barriers and providing people choice and, and letting the economics speak for themselves is ultimately the best winner, but you got to kind of go and cultivate that landscape. So we'll be doing a lot of that. We'll be doing a lot of work with, you know, communities that are not first adopters. You want to, one, make sure that it's equitable. It's not just going into, you know, wealthier communities and there's a strong commercial interest making it available to, you know, folks that, um, you know, further down the income scale or living in multi-unit housing, making it easy for everybody. I think that'll be a big focus of ours going forward. So anyway, a lot of work to do. Um, you know, we're not slowing down. If anything, I actually think this is becomes an accelerant for us and, you know, take these successes, make them a springboard into how do we scale and grow and do more. And, you know, because, you know, 100% EV sales by 2030 is pretty bold aspiration. And so in order to reach it, you know, we're not going to sit back and, you know, hope for the best. We're going to go out there and, you know, kind of block and tackle and try to make that a reality. Any final words, especially for those of us doing, you know, work in other geographies, like you, you know, led all this advocacy work in the United States. There's, uh, you know, a lot going on here in Europe as well. Do you have any, any insights or final words based on your experiences? You guys, I mean, you guys are probably further ahead in a lot of ways, so I don't have any, you know, counsel for you. But I, you know, I think the thing that to me is really interesting where I do see some some symmetry is that you got to bring all the different players together, right? You need the site hosts, you need the charging companies. I think, you know, creating a symmetrical set of interests where, you know, people see a win in it for themselves is the best way to move forward. And, you know, those coalitions, and obviously you're a part of, I think they're really, really strong. Electric Mobility Canada, um, you know, there's a, a, a ton of organizations that have kind of, you know, realized that this is the right model. So I think it's been a great mix for us. And the nice thing is that like, when you represent so many different commercial interests, uh, but are pursuing the public good, you can go in to any number of, you know, certainly federal offices. It just expands your reach, right? We represent jobs in every single congressional district. And so our ability to go in and say, hey, this is not just right for the environment. It's not just right for the consumer. We're creating manufacturing jobs in your state or your district. And that's really, really powerful. And, you know, the politics need to be right. So hopefully when you get all of, you know, these, you know, you get the advocates, you get some of the commercial interests, the utilities, the charging companies, the OEMs, all pushing together. And it happens to be the right thing to do for, you know, public health and for climate. That's kind of the recipe that we've, you know, found successful. So anyway, I know you guys know that I've had some success on your own. So I'm cheering you on. Thank you very much, Joe. So appreciate the time and the uh, conversation. It's been great. I've learned a lot. Yeah, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. That was our special transatlantic show for you today. Hope you liked it. A huge thank you to Joe for his time and his insights and the whole team over at the Zero Emission Transport Association for all of the work they have done to advance e-mobility in the United States. What did you think? There's so much we could have discussed. So what did we miss that was really important to you? Let us know. You can reach me at aaron.fishbone at greenwaynetwork.com or on Twitter or on LinkedIn pages. If you like the show, please help spread the word by sharing it with a friend or on social media. And please consider leaving us a rating or review on Apple or Spotify, because it really helps others find the show and learn about e-mobility. Huge thanks to producer Katarina Urban-Richterova for all of her work making this sound so good. And thank you all for listening. Until next time, this is Aaron Fishbone wishing you many happy and safe electric kilometers. I was sitting having coffee with the team 
one morning and, and Joe Manchin's scheduler called me and said, hey, the senator, the chairman wants to see you. And I was like, oh, what time? And she said, in 10 minutes. And I was like, you know, and I was in jeans, not necessarily in your ideal, like heading into the U.S. Senate attire. And so I ended up taking a, uh, an electric scooter, scootered all the way over to the Senate, uh, had the meeting with him.